and welcome to this episode of Fashion History with American Duchess. I am one of your hosts, Abby Cox. And I'm the other, Lauren Stoll. <laughs> and we are joined today with an amazing author named Chelsea G. Summers uh, to talk to us about the birth of vintage fashion. Hello, Chelsea. So cool. Hey. hey. <laughs> Lovely to talk to you. Woo. Welcome. So, Thanks. Chelsea. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in vintage fashion? Sure. Um, I'm a lot older than you. And uh, so I've been I've been wearing vintage clothes as long as you guys are probably alive. Fabulous. I bet that yeah. means that your collection's amazing. Yeah. Thank you for assuming no, uh, I'm younger than I am. Let's not go there. And I, so my background is I was, I did my PhD work. I didn't finish it in 18th century British literature. And I was really interested, thanks. And I was really interested in cultural studies and material culture, particularly because the 18th century is so much about material culture. Uh, you um, were the choir there. <laughs> right. In part because it's the first time you had um, you know, women with spending money. It's the first time you had an urban environment. It's the first time that you had ad, uh, publications that had advertisements. Um, so it was really very much a, a, the birth of capitalist culture. So you oh, yeah. see a lot, and also it's the, the birth of novels. Um, and so you see a lot of material objects show up over and over again in the literature. And I got really fascinated with the, cons the, the constructing of 18th century dresses and especially the underclothes and how they, yeah, and how <laughs> they sort of figure into the larger cultural narrative. Mm -hmm. um, and I started out as a writer as a, in terms of my non-academic writing, as a writer of sex. Most, I, I was a sex writer, um, but it's really, really hard to sell sex on to people who will buy it. Um, Are you, were you like a romance author or, no, I mean, or I, like I a, history of sexuality? Really, I had a really, fa I had a really big blog in mm. the two thousandsies, and was it? then it was. It's no longer. It's no longer alive, but it's on the um, Internet Wayback Machine. It was called Pretty Dumb Things. Mm. And um, sometimes I had 10,000 visitors in a day. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so I wrote for a penthouse and I wrote mm. for a bunch of magazines. And, um, and then I got an, uh, my first real academic job. And so I stopped writing about sex. And then as I was coming back into writing again, I wrote for adult magazine, which is also defunct. Um, and then that kind of got multiply hacked and stopped mm. happening. And so I really wanted to start thinking about, well, what could I write that married my interests? And writing about fashion is one of those things it does. Yeah. Um, so the, the vintage clothing, clothing thing really came out of my interest in how clothes were understood sort of pre-20th century and how they've changed since the industrialized age. Mm -hmm. um, and as I started out in my, in my piece for Racked, um, 
clothing for a long time has was a fungible item. It was a thing mm-hmm. that you counted along with like your silverware or your furniture yep. in terms of what your assets were. Mm-hmm. There wasn't, it wasn't, you know, like if you wore your, if you were a, a woman who worked for as a maid or as a, as a help meet to, to another woman, it was no big deal if you wore her clothes. If she gave you a suit of clothes, no, that was, was a really exciting, wonderful thing. Yes, it um, was. Right. And so it really wasn't until sort of the the birth of like um, the industrialized age and, and, uh, and the rise of sort of the understanding of germs that to wear secondhand clothing became, de- you know, profoundly mm-hmm. déclassé mm-hmm. and kind of gross and scungy. Mm-hmm. It can still be kind of gross. (laughs) (laughs) I have a few dresses that are like, wow, that's some 90-year-old sweat there. I I think about the stuff, like when I was in college in the 80s, I would go to um, like Salvation Army and church sales in in Burlington, Vermont, where I was in school, Mm. and just, you know, like be like, oh, this is cool, and just put it on without thinking of, gosh, perhaps this is not the most sanitary thing in Maybe the world. Maybe spray know, with some vodka first. Right. <laughs> the flavor like, smells the way it does. But yeah, yeah. it's like total slobcore culture. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so that's how I sort of got into this particular awesome. piece and thinking about, well, how did, how did old clothes not just become old clothes, but become vintage, mm-hmm. which has a layer of value. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the article that we're discussing, I realized I forgot to bring this up, is from Racked, which is an amazing website, and it is entitled just The Birth of Vintage. Um, so this article is, is kind of putting those thoughts that you just brought up, which are so beautiful, uh, together, and I had no idea you were an 18th century dress fiend either. Welcome to the club. <laughs> Uh, best friends. <laughs> Hi, friend. Because <laughs> uh, guess what our expertise is into? Woo-hoo. <laughs> um, so it's like, oh, hello. Um, so, okay. So, so going through this whole process, this is what got you interested in it. And you wrote this article, um, and it seems like you you were inspired by at least kind of to start this journey down the what is what started vintage in, in the way that we understand it today um, right. was through the Smithsonian article by Jennifer Lazat right. uh, about Lizotte. raccoon coats. And hopefully right. you're saying so, her last name correctly. <laughs> right. So what happened was I pitched the article to my editor. The editor's like, I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm like, awesome. And then I start researching and I realize, oh my God, Jennifer Lazat has pinpointed not only the general birth of vintage, but the specific birth of vintage to this dinner party in December in 1956 in, uh, the, in you know, Greenwich Village, New York, and a, and a couple of warehouses of beaver coats. And I was like, wah, wah, you know, like, <laughs> there goes my whole idea. And then I find out, you know, I read, I find the, the Smithsonian article, which is amazing and such a, such a beautiful piece of scholarship. And then I go and I read her whole, her book and I'm like, oh man, this woman knows more than I will have ever forgotten about vintage clothes. Um, 
And so then I had to sort of do that thing that writers do where you pitch the article, you like the article, how do you make it work? And I was really, then I became really interested in, well, how does it get, how does vintage as a, a discrete category of clothing become marketed? Mm. Like, how do you sell this not just to people who are bohemians and want to be outsider, but to mm. people with credit cards and are bougie and are shopping at, you know, uh, Lord and Taylor and Bloomingdale's because in the seventies, those stores had vintage shops That's within them. Fascinating to, to read. Right? I had no idea. Like when Lauren and I read that, we were like, holy, what? what? Like, this is crazy. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, thank God for the historical New York Times, which is one of my very favorite things in the world. Um, but I started doing a research about, you know, sort of when, how vintage creeps in as a marketing category. Mm -hmm. and, and it really is, and, you know, like, aside from that, there's there's that thing that happens when, in, the, in 1956, when, you know, you a bunch of people see these really chic bohemians in raccoon coats and all of a sudden it becomes this fad until there are literally no more raccoon coats. Mm -hmm. um, and then it kind of drops out. Like you don't really see it a lot throughout most of the 60s. And when I was growing up in Vermont, there was a really huge, and it's still there, um, it's on uh, Main Street, I think, in Burlington, um, a vintage store called Old Gold. Mm -hmm. And it was owned by friends of my parents. Mm -hmm. And it was huge and it was fascinating and it had that weird smell and <laughs> I... And I I, I was just, you know, like uh, starting from the time I was, you know, 18, 17, it was just this, this like hallowed ground. Like you, wa I walked in, I was like, oh, you know, this like beautiful, <laughs> like temple to weirdness and clothing. How long have you worn vintage? Sorry to interrupt. I was the, um, said starting that. at about, starting at about 16. So I'm, I turned 55 this year. So I guess, thank, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, young one. Um, <laughs> you look so, amazing. <laughs> um, I, I, we can. I do a lot of skincare, um, and and I and I'm also marrying a man twenty years younger, which helps. Uh, yeah. So um, yeah. So like, I guess what is that? Like, close to forty years. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I've got, I've had, you know, like I've had, I'm so jealous. Just, I, I have had just ridiculous vintage clothes that yeah. through attrition and, and then also wearing out that I, I, I don't have anymore. And it's like, when I think about it, I'm like, Oh, that's so <laughs> <sad>. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. I got a late forties dress. Cycle. Yeah. In my uh, bedroom right now that oh. completely ripped out the arms. eye. Like yeah. the fabric just shredded and I was so sad I just got it. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> that, that's part of the vintage wearing yeah. culture now. Our friends who dress in vintage every day, repair is just part of it. The whole make do and mend thing mm -hmm. is a thing. Um, sure. Whether you like it or not, those armpits. Mm -mm. <laughs> yeah. 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 So especially because sweat is so um, acidic. And it just burns through the fabric. And, the and you know, you talk destroys it. Too. Yeah, you're talking about a time before, you know, when people had 
wore sweat guards mm -hmm. attached to their, um, you know, foundation garments because you didn't have a choice. We did the, you, you know, there's better living through chemicals. <laughs> Sweat free. <laughs> Yellow is yeah. everything. Yeah. So yeah. with, with that in mind, I think one of the things, and this started a conversation that lasted probably about 20 minutes between Lauren and I after reading your article, is, and, and Lauren kind of brought it up with, and what you were saying with your research about the idea of selling vintage to the more middle-class bougie, but it really started as, as a counterculture sort of thing with Bohemians in New York in the 19, late 1950s. Well, and, I mean, it was a really fast transition. Yeah. If you look at Lazat's, if you look at Lazat's mm -hmm. article, it's a really fast transition from the, you know, the Bohemians started it and then it's at Lord and Taylor within three months. Yeah. And, but now with how vintage is you today, it's, it's trendy, but it's still, it's still this weird kind of counterculture, artsy it is saying I'm different but there is a social status involved there's a financial status involved and there's a work behind it involved and I just found that to be really fascinating that something that started as getting like raccoon coats out of a warehouse that were ratty and holy and gross went into mainstream which then that has a whole other question that we I want to bring up about you know chicken and egg how vintage fashion silhouettes influenced fashion in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But the whole idea behind vintage as a cultural society thing and how you're expressing your social class within it, I think is really fascinating. And I don't know what your opinions are on that, but because today to have vintage, you have to have money to yeah, do real vintage. You have to have money. Uh, you can't find it anymore church yard sales well, and things like that. You get really well, lucky. Yeah, if you're yeah, lucky. Yeah, I mean, right. You know, I mean, you you can. You can. You can't find as much. Mm -hmm. And you um, you have to be really diligent. And if you're living in New York, you're you're kind of screwed because there is such a fashion savvy place. You know, I, I think if you're in New York or if you're in LA or in a few other pockets across the US, like your vintage is going to be very, very picked over. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're in other places that has a wealthy group of old people who are dying <laughs> off, you can find stuff. Yeah. The different, the thing that's made it yet more difficult is there's people like, well, like um, Bambi Galore, Bambi Galore, no, not Bambi Galore, Bambi, um, Bambi, Bambi DeVille, who is the uh, vintage store owner in New Orleans mm. um, that I interviewed, is a, also is a dealer and she travels around and she finds clothes by knowing people who go to places and scout for her. And that's also how like Siri Moskowitz, who's a mm -hmm. celebrity who, wear, who wears nothing but vintage, yeah. also finds her stuff. So you, you can find it. Like I got a pristine 1980s, like late 70s, early 80s, new with tag, um, Tibetan, like, uh, you know, that shirt, that like very curly sheepskin jacket, mm -hmm. the Tibetan mm -hmm. sheep jacket from Sears from California on eBay. Now the question For is, did you take the tag sauce? 
<laughs> I did take the tag off <gasps> for, for, for $80 because wow. I wear my vintage. I don't, yeah. you know, like I don't, yeah, I don't care about collecting the, 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 the difference, the difference now. And I think that sort of one of the things that you're bringing up is that vintage used to be just this big one lump in category. And now there's vintage, there's antique and there's collectible. Mm-hmm. And these are all, they can be overlapping, but they're not necessarily the same thing. And anybody can wear vintage clothing if you don't, if you don't want to wear expensive, nice vintage clothing. You can wear 1970s Orlon, you know, suits and pants if you're into that. God help you. But, um, but you know, it's, avail- it's available to wear. It's not going to rot ever. In you know, like its half life is longer than that of plutonium. Um, I mean, it, it continues to exist. It's just not the stuff that you want to wear. The pool of the stuff that people want to wear is incredibly uh, much smaller and shrinking all the time. Yeah. What are what are your opinions about vintage stores today selling early 90s and late 80s clothes as vintage versus the more, I guess, like what I've well, started like vestiaire. Like yeah. vestiaire, um, which I, I like a lot. And like I got a uh, 1990s Galliano dress for my engagement party from mm. vestiaire vintage. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, it you know, it's an incredible shape. It's really lovely, but yeah, it's weird that this is probably mid nineties Galliano, which makes it about 20 years old, which I guess sort of just makes it squeak under the quote unquote vintage label. Um, but you know, the 1980s clothes is vintage, you know, they are vintage now. Mm-hmm. And that just, that makes me feel old. But, you know, <laughs> like, like, you know, I get older, they stay the same age. You know, yeah. it's, it's like, um, it's just, that's just what happens. Yeah. But I do yeah. think that yeah. like contemporary, like, you know, like contemporary culture, there are a few reasons, a few different reasons why people wear vintage. And mm-hmm. some are new and different and some are the same old, same old. Really? And one of it, one of the things is this nostalgia, this sort mm-hmm. of saudad for a for a, an age that you are not a part of. This I you know, this like romanticized notion of the sixties or the seventies or the eighties or whatever, or, you mm-hmm. know, or nineteen twenties. Um so there's the nostalgia. And I think that that was very much a part of um vintage in the wearing in the 1970s and 80s. Like when my mom, I remember my mom got a 1930s, late 30s, late 20s, early 30s dress. And it was just before the Robert Redford Great Gatsby came out. Mm -hmm. And there was already in the 70s because of gas lines and, and, you know, really strange politics and a kind of regressionism, a a very pervasive sense of nostalgia. And so nostalgia is part of the reason why people wear it. Another reason is, and and, um, Bambi DeVille brought this up, that the clothes are just made so much better, even 
stuff that is mass produced was made better than the clothes that are being made today. So you can get, you can, you can pay, if you pay $300 for a, a solid piece of vintage clothing, it is made better than probably what you can afford for $300 today. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's that. And then there are people who just have that love of that particular line or palette or, or, you know, for aesthetic reasons that it's a very deep aesthetic. And I think that that's, I think that that's sort of a new thing where people are developing this deeply aesthetic sense of how do I want to project myself in, you know, who, like, how do I want to look in ways that because of Instagram and because of social media, is, you know, and, and, and presenting yourself as quote unquote, a brand is a new and radically different thing than what had happened before. Mm -hmm. And then I think sort of, um, there is this, you know, DIY culture Mm -hmm. that where people, and you know, like this thing, like you're drinking your coffee at, not you, but one drinks (laughs) one's coffee out of a Mason jar. And, you know, so, so vintage clothing sort of also fits into this notion of creating a life that is Mm -hmm. outside of your technological devices. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, like repurposing your kimonos for whatever, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. so there's that, there's also that kind of whimsy thing. And I think that that is, I think that's a relatively new concept where there's handicraft and visuals in as a, as a, as a aesthetic and philosophical statement. Mm. So here's a, a question from, from me. Hi, I'm Lauren. Uh, <laughs> how do you feel about um, acquiring vintage pieces and then altering them? Uh, I remember watching um, Nasty Gal's Girl Boss show, and I had read um, Girl Boss, the book, and I liked it, but I did not like the show so much. Um, and one of the things that made me like, ah, was when the character uh, acquired like a 40s dress and then chopped it up to make it occurrent. How do you personally feel about that? Because there's there's two camps there. Yeah, I mean, I've done it. You know, like I remember I got this really just totally fetch sheer shift pink chiffon flocked with little white flowers, 1950s tea dress that went Mm. down to my mid calves. This was like 1993. Mm. And I was like, I can't deal with all this fabric. Like I just, I can't, I just, you know, and I didn't want to wear, I'd like, I, I, didn't want to wear the petticoats and I didn't want to wear the crinolines. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I cut it off into a mini skirt and wore it around like that for a long time and loved it. So, I mean, I, I do that and sure. I'm sure there are some vintage purists who want me to die in a hell and that's totally fine you know whatever I mean at the same time like I remember I also bought this Norma Kamali um 
vintage Norma Kamali leopard print something and it didn't fit me right. And I was like, the only person I can think of that I know this would be good for is this burlesque friend of mine, Gal Friday. And I was like, Gal, I've got this, this garment for you. Um, and I want you to have it. And then she's like, Oh cool. Can I cut it up? I'm like, yeah, it's yours. Do what you want. You know? So I, I get both sides. Yeah. Yeah, I think it depends on the age of the garment. These are just this is just my personal opinion. Um, I've obviously taken the darts in and out, mostly out <laughs> of vintage dresses. I've hemmed vintage dresses. Um, the things that I do, I try to make reversible, but I wouldn't. I don't think I'd alter completely a dress. Um, but then it depends on what age it is. So, I mean, I've gone to the thrift store and bought things from the 70s. And, oh, look, faux fur. I need that for a trim on such and such 18th century cloak. I'm going to cut this up. No guilt whatsoever. But if that were like a 1920s raccoon coat, I would have thrown myself into the Orlon fire. I think <laughs> I, could not, I could not do that. But then it's like, well, what condition is it in? If it's right. full of holes and if it's like this is never – it's falling apart um, – what do you do with it? Right. Do you give it new life as something else or do you just let it rot away? Obviously if it's 200 years old, it goes into a, you know, a, a vault or something. It's, it has, a di- it's changing, changing definitions and changing value of items depending on how old they are. Right. You see where I'm going with this kind yeah. of like what's a museum piece well, and depending right. on what age it is. Well, again, that goes along with too. the ideas of, a vin- uh, is it vintage, is it antique, or is it collectible? Yeah. And, you know, more and more clothes um, are being sold as antique. And basically, if it's, you know, before the crash right now, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the of the Great Depression, it's antique. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, it's vintage. I think that whole idea, though, is actually pretty fascinating. The idea of cutting something up now being very taboo because... You know, when we look at fashion from the past, our ancestors had no problem taking a 1740s brocade gown and cutting it up being like, I got grandma's dress on. It's 1840s. It's 100 years old. Look how good I look. I'm so trendy right now. You know, they did it in the 1870s, 1880s. They did it in the 19th century. I mean, there are original 18th century court suits in collections that were worn by children as dress up and they didn't care. But it isn't until, I think, very, very recently, even just the rise of dress history and fashion history and and curating clothing collections and treating them as valuable pieces of material culture. Because before then, you know, the costume collections were always overlooked. It's all about the paintings. It's all about the pottery. It's all about everything else but the clothing. But it's only very recently that we've made that jump going, how dare you touch that? like, there's there's so, been questions asked among curators as yeah. well is, so we have a 18th century gown that has 19th century darts put in. What do we do with it? Do we leave it with the darts in or do we take the darts out? It's, uh, depending on the curator, they make that decision. Uh, the local collection we have here, they had exactly that situation. They did decide to re- remove the 19th century additions uh, and changes to revert it back to about 1780, the scout was. Um, but that must be a super hard call. Like Abby says, it's like, oh, <laughs> it was a well, common thing to do. Right, and it's a legit marker of a historical moment in time, regardless of exactly. which choice you make. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. take so how, yeah, how invalid dress, is yeah. 
Yeah. Cutting right. it off. Is that really bad? Or is it just a marker of the time that you you were wearing that that gap? Right. Yeah. I mean, particularly when you think about like, you know, early 1990s is like, you know, the birth of Kinder Whore and, and Courtney Love and mm-hmm. all of that sort of, you know, coming into full fruition, like my choice to wear that, that weird little fifties frock as mm-hmm. a mini skirt with not much underneath it mm-hmm. was very much of its time. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Fascinating. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I think that, and one of the things that you, you brought up a little bit earlier is that the chicken and the egg concept of like, well, especially now, because fashion is always ever more revolving than evolving. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you had, you had Ralph Lauren knocking off the 1920s and 30s in the <laughs> 1970s mm-hmm. that is now vintage, mm-hmm. you know, that is now being knocked off and everything spins in upon itself until mm-hmm. Forever 21 vomits on the floor. <laughs> it's like this, it's like, this you know, like, like increasing black mm-hmm. hole of self-referentialism. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that is what makes, you know, things like Come to the Garçon look so startling and, and amazing is that it's a rejection um, more than it is a, a reconfiguration of what came mm-hmm. before it. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, especially things like the, you know, Christian Dior new look um, uh, silhouette that got, you know, became, got ripped off, became vintage, got ripped off, became vintage, and, you know, and on and on again, mm-hmm. kind of ad nauseum. So when it comes to looking back now at vintage 80s and early 90s and late 70s um, and the idea of like 80s does 40s Um, Mm -hmm. with your research and what you were doing with this racked article about the birth of vintage and and how you made this connection that they were starting to repro do repro vintage to fill in the 70s in the 70s to fill the void do you yeah so this is another like chicken and egg thing it's like what what got that started as that overall like aesthetic with the big shoulder pads in, in the 80s and like 70s does 30s and this kind of thing? Do you think the vintage, the trend for vintage in New York is what influenced the modern designers to go down that path? Or was it just something that just kind of happened all at once? Or was it movies? Or was I mean, it movies? Well, I, I think I think movies had a big part Ralph of it. Lauren. But I think that, you know, I think that um you know, if you're looking at like 80s big shoulders, you know, and like Norma Kamali and, mm-hmm. and that whole sort of um, trend, living through, having lived through the 80s and, you know, Yoji Yamamoto and I had, you know, like at one point there was this whole, like I remember this whole big spread in vogue when Yoji was just like finally got the cover. And so all, all of a sudden you had all of these you know, 1980s supermodels with their hair teased up and wrapped in gauze and like this really thick black eyeshadow and, you know, metallic lips and all like, like just, mm-hmm. you know, glowering at the camera with smizing like these. for days. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah, not even, no smizing, just, <laughs> a, just angry, angry eyes. <laughs> and, um, 
And, you know, that, you know, that 80, that sort of uh, archetypal 80s illustration with the, with the airbrushed, like, um, blush up, you know, up yeah, the yeah. <laughs> that's what the makeup really looked like. And so uh, I ended up doing a fashion thing for somebody and they wrapped my head in the gut and teased my hair and did the whole thing. And it was a really bizarre moment because here it was in Vermont, like 1983. And there was this sense of like, well, there's a watershed in fashion. Like there's this moment where we're really looking at the future and things seem to be changing and possible and, and rejecting of, you know, the norms that came before it and bodies are weird and we have little slouchy socks and look at us, our pants don't fit. And, (laughs) you know, and that just like, it lasted like 18 months and then everybody went back to, you know, tight trousers and shoulder pads because I think that there becomes this like template like aesthetic template of what the future looks like. And the designers then had grown up through the 30s and 40s when, you know, like Tomorrowland had Mm -hmm. shoulder pads, you know, it was like, and then, so they were like, oh, it's tomorrow, we'll give everybody shoulder pads, you know. (laughs) So there was this sort of thing that, like, we are always, always, doomed unless you're a real visionary we are always doomed to replicate those things that informed us as children I really hope that doesn't happen because that's well I think that's what's happening now and that's why so many millennials are going oh no make it stop please god make it stop no flare please (laughs) please stop please stop oh no 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 let's go I mean that's how I felt that's how I felt the first time the 70s came back yeah and then the second time the 70s came back I was like yeah I don't know I guess that works I kind of like it sure Why not? And then the third time the 70s came back, I was like, okay, I am so in for this. Like, like, I am getting those Nipton blazers and those mom jeans, like, now. I mean, so, like, there is, there's also, like, there's also what I call, like, fashion Stockholm syndrome, (laughs) which is, I remember the first time I saw those stupid, am I allowed to swear on this or not? Yes. Right for it. Okay. These, those stupid fucking boots <laughs> with the toes cut off so you oh, can no, see yes. that it's like January and yes. you have a pedicure, Oh, you wrote right? that article on the peep toe boots, didn't you? <laughs> I didn't write that article. But like, no? so, the, no, I didn't. But like the first that. time I saw them, and for like, you know, for like two years afterwards, I'm like, oh, I fucking hate those things. They're so, you know, and like, I live, I live right by the meatpacking district. Mm. So it, you know, every September, and every April it is model central you know I live a block and a half away from milk studios you know it is it's it's like this is a this is a thing like I would see people out in January in these stupid (laughs) boots they are really stupid right until like last year year, Oh, maybe they're okay. And then I'm like, oh no, I now I need to go home and bludgeon myself. Because <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. So we can remain friends. We will never make peep toe booties. Because yeah. nobody in the 30s was doing that. I and I also would throw a hissy fit and go, no. <laughs> it was like, 
These are stupid. It's six inches of snow on the, no, on the ground outside. The 1930s, like if you were really chic in the 1930s, you had the soles of your shoes shined. Ooh, that sounds terrifying, actually, because, wow, slick. <laughs> yeah, you would, like, it was, you know, it was a thing that you would go and you would not just have the upper portion, but you would have the entire shoe, you know, polished. Wow. And then you would walk Even. very, very carefully. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, yeah. Not you on know. tile, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, right. or, or, or that, like, granite that's, like, yeah. in some of the subway stops. <laughs> you imagine? Oh, God, ah! could you imagine wiping out in this? Yes. Oh, yes, yeah. I can. Oh, So you, yeah. you guys, you've, you've talked about something interesting that I want to I elaborate on um, with you about the further back in time um, uh, an item of clothing or really anything, this works for anything, the older it gets, the more beautiful it becomes. There's a, a whole chart for this. And even if you lived through it, as you said earlier, the older it gets, and the further away from it you get, the more acceptable it becomes. But I wonder about every generation and every revolution that looks back uh, is taking their own spin on it. So when we have repro vintage, repro retro stuff today that is like, this is a 20s dress, it is so of its current time because in 20 years where you go wow that is so 2017 does 1920s they never quite get it exactly right it's very rare to have something that can fool somebody who knows vintage so right. we're taking the best of well, we're romanticizing our own memories or collective memories of our society into how we interpret the 30s or the 40s today right so, you're also talking about I mean, the, the big thing that we're leaving out here is capitalism. And in every piece of clothing that you can purchase, every piece of clothing that you can purchase has infinite numbers of calculations done in order to make it profitable. Mm -hmm. And so the stuff that was profitable that is stuck around you know, from the 1920s or 30s and that stuck around today, you have like little tiny pin darts and, and, you know, little interior seams and, and facings and a lot of construction and a whole bunch of things that you just don't have now because to do lots and lots of little smocking or little pin darts is prohibitively expensive. Um, so one of the reasons why it's always like like confused dog face when you're looking at uh, you know the the 2000s do the 1940s or whatever and, and then look at look at it next to a 1940s garment is that all of these little details and construction um, moments are gone. Yeah, absolutely true. Um, and the fabric changes, me, and you know. Oh, totally. You can't. Yeah, that reminds me of um, in footwear. It's it's French heels. French mm. heels died because of manufacturing. It's shaped sleeves. They're too expensive to cut because right. they they use too much fabric. But I they mean, look so much for, better. They look so much better. French heels are stable. They're they're comfortable, and yet they require mm. a two part mold, and so therefore they are more expensive. But that yeah. leaves room for industry uh, entrepreneurs like us to come along and go, this stuff isn't being made anymore. 
but we find it important. And so we're going to make our version of it. But our shoes, Royal Vintage shoes, still look modern, no matter how hard we try, because we've lost some of these manufacturing techniques. They're just not done anymore. Some of the materials are not done anymore. Mm -hmm. Like galoon binding, the factory's like, whoa, can't even yeah. buy that stuff. Right. So our shoes are always going to look like 2017 does 1930. And I'm not upset about that because we do the best we can. But still, it's sometimes I'm like, why can't we just replicate this? <laughs> right. Well, what's his name? Um, the uh, he, he just quit acting again for like the fourth time. Uh, the guy who was in My Left Foot and, and Gangs of New York. British actor. Oh, Daniel Day-Lewis. Right. So right. Daniel Day-Lewis, do you remember when Daniel Day-Lewis was like, I am, I am going to the hills of Italy and I am learning how to become a cobbler. I remember don't that remember that specific moment, but I remember he, he's very method. I know that for a fact. Right. Yeah. Well, this, yeah. Wasn't, this wasn't to, for a role. This was, mm. I'm going to the, to the hills of, of, Italy and I'm learning how to become a cobbler and mm -hmm. I quit acting. And like I, part of his frustration as he came out of it was, you know, like the fact that he couldn't do, like could no long people could no longer do the things that they had once done no. to make no. shoes. The, yeah. uh, we have, I think Lawrence tried to make shoes, but when it comes to, this is kind of going down a bit of a rabbit hole, uh, but when it comes to that like historic that. shoemaking, that's like the one thing I've never touched I will make stays. I will make corsets. I will work in very weird animal materials. I will make gowns completely by hand sewn in the 18th century way. All my friends who are shoemakers, kudos to you, will not touch it. And the thing is, is like when they're trying to, to get the materials that they need, it's impossible. Like boar bristle, um, using boar bristles for needles, they have to make it themselves. Yeah. Black ball for blackening things and, and the waxes and all of that, it, they all have to make it themselves. And I don't think people understand. We don't have half of what the past had as materials. We yeah. think we're so forward thinking and have all of these things available to us. It's modernity. This is great. We got the internet. And we can't even find decent silk taffeta 95% of the time. You're stuck with, Look, with plastic. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, for the article that I did for Racked before this one was mm -hmm. on uh, the high cost of distressed clothing. Mm. So in doing my research for that, I got into this insane, like deep dive into people who would go all over the world to find these specialty clothing objects one thing being raw denim and another thing being these distressed shoes that were crafted again in the hills of Italy and then buried in a desert in Morocco and then dug up and then cleaned off, like brushed off and worn. And people would, you know, people spend like thousands of dollars in order to get these shoes that look like something that are would appear in an Ellis Island photograph. Why would, oh God. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Okay. But it, it's, a, you know, I think in part because they're made ex 
exquisitely, mm-hmm. even if they're incredibly ugly. And distressed. Um, but yeah, like, so there is, there like the, the lengths to which people will create a narrative for mm-hmm. their own clothing and then by extension for their own special selves has increased in ways that I never would have imagined mm-hmm. even as a highly self-involved, um, solipsistic, you know, 20 year old searching through Salvation Army clothing bins. And that's one of the things that vintage clothing does is it help. It's a shorthand for your narrative of selfhood Mm. and your, your special specialness because (laughs) you have this garment that few other people in the world, if anyone has. Yeah. That uniqueness. Yeah. yeah, that you bring to the table. It's a very right. excellent reflection of who you are as well. Um, because when you do have something so unique, no one else has it. There's definitely a special butterfly effect going on there. Right. Yes, there is, there is a very special butterfly effect. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. And what, what the other thing that this whole um, foray into thinking mm-hmm. about vintage's past brought up for me was, well, what's going to happen in vintage's future? I mean, when you're talking about like fast fashion and clothing that is made to fall apart and that people buy and then just send off to Salvation Army, which then ends up in, you know, who knows where across the world being recycled, Mm. like what happens to the vintage clothing in 50 years? Like what are, you, what are your kids going to wear? Yeah. Well, I think that whole idea is interesting because when it comes to fast fashion and vintage clothing, the future of vintage clothing, but I think you kind of touched on it earlier too when the idea of the DIY culture that we're and the nostalgia that's that we're kind of experiencing at this point in time in, in our history is how long will fast fashion actually last? Because there's already a massive pushback against it. You know, websites devoted to spend more money, you get something that will last a lifetime, minimalize it in your wardrobe to have higher quality pieces. Um, Even like the shoes we make, one of the things that we like to think about is that we're kind of pushing against fast fashion by saying these shoes are classics, they're beautiful, they're well-made, they will last you a long time if you take care of them. They're not meant to fall apart after a couple wears. They're not meant to only last half a season. They're meant to last you a very long time. And ha- like, I feel like that well, I kind think, of I mean, is going to affect how, how it happens in the future. Sure. Because And here's the, here's the counterpoint, which is that fashion is incredibly ubiquitous mm-hmm. right now. I mean, oh, if you're not yeah. talking about, if you're not talking about runway, you know, if you're not talking about Marnie, or, uh, you know, um, a really sort of avant-garde high fashion. Mm-hmm. It's it, one, one thing could be somebody else's, could be somebody else's, could be somebody else's. There is a tremendous blandness about fashion. And I say that as a person who, as I've gotten older, increasingly wears only black and white and red Mm -hmm. and buys, you know, five t-shirts that look exactly like 
well, tank tops, because I don't like sleeves, you know, <laughs> that, that look exactly like each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, the, the, the other, the, like the other flip side of that is, well, what happens to vintage when the majority of clothing looks alike? Well, I, I wonder about like what you said about all of our clothes look the same right now. Um, I found really interesting. It reminds me of walking the floor at FM Platform at Magic uh, and seeing thousands upon thousands of footwear vendors all selling essentially the same thing. Yeah. It was just a sea of black and brown block heels over and over and over again. It was running into remix and bait and irregular choice on the floor was like a breath of fresh air. So I think there's a lot of kitschiness happening, especially this season, in at least in footwear, but in fashion in general, uh, across more than just retro-loving people like us, that is maybe a revolt against the blandness and the boringness, but it's so cheap. It's so, it's fashion, it's not style. You know what I mean? So to quote Chanel and Ralph Lauren. Uh, so... I, I wonder, I, I'm agreeing with you. I wonder what, is that going to be what survives the most eye-catching pieces but are not necessarily made well? Is it going to only be designers that survive into the vintage of the future? Or will the cheap, fast, fast fashion products from H&M and Forever 21, those that survive be considered collector's pieces because they weren't meant to survive and they were supposed to fall apart? And, and they're rare. Say, oh, I have a Forever 21 piece. Oh, it's so like 40 years old and it has like two threads in it but look it's like there right yeah oh god no to be fair yeah, i actually have some forever 21 whole, stuff that's lasting you know, like a long the time vintage, the vintage of our future will be t-shirts that say nasty woman <laughs> oh, god. No. or like random memes that no one will understand like don't be cat <laughs> Yeah, sweatpants that say sexy on the butt. Awesome. Right. Tour tra- track suits. Yeah, so right. we, I mean, we're not all that into what's fashionable right, right now in certain, mm-hmm. I guess, certain categories. Uh, so I wonder, again, in the future, maybe we're doomed. But see, after 40 years, we'll think it's all beautiful again. So it's all right. I don't know if I will <laughs> ever know. support Will we? jeans. No. Oh, see, I um, I blame them I for actually, muffin tops. So. <laughs> oh yeah, see, I actually like low cut flare jeans, but then I, again, like you know, Stockholm syndrome. I think because I watched too many episodes of Buffy, you know, yeah. just like so. So basically, if it's if it's mid nineties and it looks like something Buffy would have worn, I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm down. I mean, yeah. I you know, like I totally. I should, yeah. I should totally like, call my own ass out on this, that if I'm not wearing vintage-inspired stuff, I'm usually like a tunic dress and leggings girl, which is the same stuff I rocked as a 10-year-old in the mid-90s. Like, <laughs> the only difference is that I'm not wearing, like, you know, hiking boots with, like, slouchy socks. I'm wearing something Hey, else. you can go and buy wolf shirts and wear them, <laughs> like, fashionably. I was made fun of because I had a wolf shirt for every day of the week when I was 11... 12, 13, 15 years old. I would be cool now. I wish I had my vintage wolf shirts now. (laughs) It's funny, you know, like when I was like, when I was nine and 10 growing up in, in Vermont, I like, I, 
I, if you look at pictures of me, I look like the fifth unknown member of Hanson, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) and, and basically my goat, like I wear, I wear jeans and tank tops all the time. I'm getting married in leather pants and a tank top and, you know, yeah. Like, so I think, again, I think you just sort of, no matter what we are always going to be captive of our what entranced us as a childhood as a child and i think that that's inescapable and the best you can do is to make it work for you yeah interesting well, shirts for everybody awesome Oh, woohoo. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, this has been amazing talking to you, Chelsea. Absolutely. Yeah. I have enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, and so I feel much. really, I just like want to keep going and talk about 18th century stuff now because, like, <laughs> anytime, <laughs> anytime you want to talk about 18th century clothing, I will happily have the sevenfold gate petticoat store, you know, conversation. <laughs> Awesome. So for those of you who uh, want to read the article, The Birth of Vintage on Racked.com, um, you can read all of this in print and there's some cool photos as well yes. about raccoon coats being the birth of vintage. We'll add linkies uh, everywhere when we post We them. will add linkies. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. Is there any way people can contact you if you want them to? Yes or no? Yeah, um, yeah, sure. My website is either Chelsea Summers or Chelsea G Summers dot com mm-hmm. and uh, my email is Chelsea G Summers at Gmail. And then of course I'm always on Twitter, even though I just deleted all my <laughs> tweets. I use Twitter at Chelsea G Summers. Um, so sure, yeah. Cool. Sweet. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. Oh, by the way, if you're enjoying listening, uh, don't forget to subscribe to Fashion History with American Duchess.com. Or, well, that was both together. I'm doing a really good job here. Uh, Fashion History with American Duchess. Yeah. Or check us out at AmericanDuchess.com. You can also check out our vintage line of shoes at RoyalVintageShoes.com. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Uh, See you later. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.